All right. You like it. You love it. You want some more of it. So we're going to keep pumping these out. This is Father Owen Carroll, whose book is now available on magnusinstitute.org and Amazon, currently 20% off for your reading pleasure. And more of our great work uh, and the work we're doing for over 800 fellows now, you can become one of them at magnusinstitute.org. And in the meantime, please enjoy Father Owen Carroll. This is Omnes Gentes. Enjoy. Well, we'll begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. The Spirit of Truth, Spirit of the Father and the Son, illumine our minds, inflame our hearts to pursue truth as you've given to us for our good and the good of humanity. This we ask through Christ our Lord. Amen. We've been looking at... um, what Robinson Smith in the 1880s started calling corporate personality, and he was speaking particularly of the Old Testament, and uh, we saw the example of Jacob becoming Israel, and uh, we saw that change of name is not only significant for Jacob, but also significant as it happens later on for people like Peter and Paul. And in a sense, uh, even for us, when uh, through baptism, uh, we we take on a new name until we come to the fullness of the name that will be given to us at the second coming of Christ. Mm. Now, we'd ask the question, is uh, there is the difference between this one man, Jacob, and the many men and women and children of Israel? And yet, what is being presented to us is there is a unity or a union between Jacob and Israel. Now we saw something of a start of that type of union in and with Abraham. Now you see what starts in Abraham is certainly going to be carried out in uh, other great personages in Israel's life, like Jacob. But we see with Abraham that Abraham is chosen, Abraham, this one man with his clan around him, uh, some 500 people, but yet it promised to him that in him all nations, that is, all the rest of humanity who already have been, are, and will be, will find their blessedness in him. Now, as I've said before, 
One doesn't find this in any of the dynasties uh, and their ages in Israel. You don't find it in classical Greece. You don't find it in the Babylonian empires. You don't find it in the Iranian empire. You don't find it in Hinduism, Buddhism. You don't find it anywhere else. Um, and in that sense, with Abraham, and that all humanity will find their blessedness in him, we have an action of God in and on and with Abraham to establish a new kind of humans. And don't forget that all the nations finding their blessings, their holiness in Abraham is an extraordinary thing. It means that the um, all humanity has to give up their local gods. Welcome, Stefan. Thank you. We just started about three minutes ago. Sorry. But um, most of it is repetition so far. But now, the uniqueness of Israel, of uh, Abraham, is that it's not that um, all humanity is going to get riches in Abraham or get uh, power or get more sheep or land or whatever it is. It's holiness. But you see, if we consider Abraham, Abraham, the, the pagan from Ur, who worship, basically worships amongst many gods, the high god Marduk, you see, there is no holiness in Abram, the pagan. There's no holiness. So if all nations are going to find their holiness in Abraham, God must be giving Abraham a way of being and acting that is not a possession or a right of, of human nature as such. It ha the holiness can only come from God. God. I thought the holiness, I mean, when, when we come into being, do we not have any holiness? No. When, when we were born, we were little pagans. <laughs> it's, that's the huge change. See, it was foreshadowed for Israel in uh, God's asking uh, Abraham to, uh, and his to undergo circumcision. See, it was to mark that whatever was coming from, let's say, the human male bodies, that uh, all of that f fertility 
who was already given by God and was being given back to God. And so baptism does a, a number of things like that too. Mm -hmm. But the for our purposes, I think, uh, you see, uh, <laughs> thank you. The, uh, <clears throat> the whole, you know, <clears throat> when Christ says to people who are calling him good, and he says, why do you call me good? Only God is good. You see, it was an invitation on his part to them to say, well, then if we're calling you God, then you are God. You see, the huge change that that makes. So in the same way, <clears throat> oh, sorry, I've gone blank. In any case, with uh, Abraham, the pagan from Ur has no particular holiness in himself. Mm. Nothing is said in scripture that he was an outstandingly moral man or that he had any sort of human natural gift that would make God choose him. Well, God must have had seen something that the others didn't see. Or that God had his all-wise plans, that through his all-wise power, he was going to fulfill in Abram the pagan, if Abram the pagan accepted to follow what God wanted. That is, if Abram was willing to become a co-operator with God, mm -hmm. then God would give him all kinds of gifts of uh, uh, holiness for all nations. <clears throat> you know, the same point, uh, looking at it in a slightly different way. <clears throat> um, let's say the, the UN. It's an international body. So supposedly is uh, the European Union. Mm -hmm. So is supposed to be the world court in The Hague. Um, UNESCO. Um, the, uh, you see, there are a good number of institutions, particularly in recent centuries, well, I'm thinking back to the foundation of the League of Nations. Mm. Wasn't that around 1920? Somewhere under Wilson? Yeah. And well, it was under Wilson, I remember. It yeah. was Wilson, I knew that. But you see, how effective, oh, and then we have to mention a number of movements, not so much institutions, but movements of these people or that people that uh, intend to have an international 
effect on all nations. So I'm thinking of the, um, what are now called the globalists, the economists who, for instance, gather at Davos in Switzerland or Aspen in Colorado, and they're all billionaires, and they try to come up with policies that will influence the globe. Um, there's another group, one doesn't hear very much about them these years. Um, the group of Rome or something like that. There was a group, not particularly big financiers, though there were some, but they were trying to establish uh, a one world. Climate control people are trying to establish a one world. Yeah. Now, if you ask yourselves, or maybe I should say it, with all of the cities in Athens, the, the, the polis, P-O-L, I-S in Greek. Um, Though they shared the same language and they shared the same gods and uh, they had a fair amount of trade amongst themselves, their life as the Greek polis was, um, and in a sense, they were all of the same race. Um, originally, the Dorians becoming the Achaeans. <clears throat> they were always fighting and killing each other. Unless this polis submitted itself, let's say, to Athens. Athens which was much more powerful, would go in and say, you submit yourself to us or else we'll kill you all. And the, 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 there was an, an incident, what a word, um, the city of Melis, and it was conquered by Athenians in in a war, <clears throat> and uh, the Athenians said, I'm more or less quoting in a paraphrase, unless you completely submit to every demand that we make, we will kill you all. And the reason is that there is power, and at the moment, we've got power. If you had power, you millions, you would do that to us. Now you see, Greek with Greek. But you see how ruthless their power, uh, the execution of their power was. Unless you submit, 
we will uh, destroy you all. And uh, the Melians uh, said, we will not submit. And they were all killed down to the, the last infant. The, this is, these are the people who are supposed to have given us democracy. <laughs> well, there were some elements, but democracy was considered by people like Plato and Aristotle to be uh, the lowest, uh, second lowest form of societal organization. Um, what was the lowest? Um, well, democracy that bro broke down into mob rule. Now, democracy breaking down into mob rule, look at, uh, is it Seattle or Portland? You know? Um, Probably Portland. I think then Portland. The mob has now for about three years taken over um, a large part of the city really? and utterly rules it. Wow. Yeah. Um, but you know, yeah. that type of thing is going on in different ways. Um, even here in the States. Um, but let's say in England, mm -hmm. there are large communities of Muslims in um, uh, cities like Manchester and Southampton and others. <clears throat> and the British police will not go into that area of the city because it is so dominated by uh, the Muslim Sharia law. The Muslims have declared that this is our territory and we rule here. Wow. Um, but uh, the, um, I remember hearing on television a few years, four or five years back, that there are 26 such places here in the States, not so much in cities, but out in the countryside. Uh, the, you see this, under the guise of bringing about some kind of union of the same kind of members together, the use of violence becomes a very prominent instrument of a unification. Sounds like the beginning of the Soviet Union. Yeah, well, it's what the uh, it's what the Bolsheviks did to the uh, Kerenyi government that had taken over from the Tsar. Uh -huh. It was a peaceful. Um, a peaceful transition, but the Bolsheviks got in and turned it into a, a bloody revolution. I'm trying to recall the name, the secretary to Kerenyi, who uh, took over peacefully, 
uh, it was a 19-year-old fellow, and he ended up down at Stanford. <laughs> uh, I've forgotten his name. As a teacher or what? As a disciplinarian? As a disciplinarian? No, he was secretary no, to no, Curran. No, I'm talking about Stanford. Um, I, he was, uh, I think, doing academic work there. Oh. Well, he had historical knowledge that n probably nobody else had about the transition. Right. But uh, uh, oh, here comes Connie. Along that line, you see, there are groups that get into institutions and then they, they take control of the institution, not for the purpose of the institution, but for their purpose. Mm -hmm. um, so the way that uh, people take over um, a bureaucracy or a trust fund, mm. uh, and use it for their own purposes. That goes on all the time. Mm -hmm. When I first came to St. Mary's, there was a woman, uh, early middle age, in her late 30s maybe, uh, who was finishing up her doctoral thesis in the history department at Cal. And uh, I learned that she was studying the transition from the Bolsheviks, you know, people like uh, Lenin and Trotsky and uh, uh, the bloody gang. Uh, hello. I'm so sorry. The, um, she was studying who was really running the country. And she discovered that the bureaucrats under the czar had continued in their bureaucratic positions, and they were still running the country. Uh, and I think that went on until uh, Stalin came along, and then he started running everything. <clears throat> but you see, there is there's so many groups that uh, tend to have to use the very common term now, global aspirations. Mm -hmm. Let's say certainly the Chinese Communist Party has that. Uh, in his way, Putin in Russia has that. It's consistent with the communist understanding of themselves. But you see, as I had started saying, with the, the Greeks, they never had this intention to sort of take over the world. Uh, they did have the practice that when Apollos became too numerous, they would get the people to join together and go elsewhere, and the originating polis 
would help them to start another polis, either on the north coast of Africa or in Sicily, parts of Italy. Um, but uh, that wasn't uh, with the intention of uh, making the whole world one. They were, you see, if a polis got too big, it couldn't function. If there are discussions, let's say in Plato, what is the ideal size of a Greek polis? And I think he said something around, I'm not certain of the figure any longer, 5,800 people? Well, nowadays we'd hardly call that a city. I think San Francisco used to have 700,000 people. Not the peninsula, the city itself. I doubt if it has that now. But the, you see, the Egyptians didn't have this idea of spreading around the globe. They were so centered on the Nile as the nourisher. Uh, and uh, neither did the Iranians, and they were tremendous empire builder, but uh, it wasn't to... If they went after somebody else, it was because of food supplies and slaves and whatnot, so to enrich themselves. Um, so where do all of these... Uh, movements that intend to make the world into one form of reality come from? Well, there's an obvious answer. The church. You see, the church was, whether you belong to it or not, whether you believe or not or whatever, you see, there is this reality in the world that brought so many different kinds of people together into a very easily disrupted peace. Um, But at least there was the understanding coming out of Israel into the formation of the church that uh, uh, was quite explicit in Christ's mind. Mm -hmm. After his resurrection, he appears to the apostles and he says to them, all power in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, therefore, because of all of my power, um, go and um, teach all nations, baptizing them into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. 
and uh, instruct them to follow all of the things I have told you. Now, you see there, from Abraham up to Christ, particularly through the prophets, you have a continuity, a developing continuity, but nevertheless a continuity. Even Jesus himself says, um, and he says it, uh, I think he says it to the Samaritan woman, salvation comes from the Jews. And I've mentioned this before, but uh, a long time back, uh, Pius the Ninth, who became Pope in the mid 1800s, no, yes, uh, he said to the whole church, spiritually, we are Jews. That is, uh, we must understand ourselves as Gentiles being uh, brought into union with the beginning of it all in Abraham. Now you see, there is um, where communism and uh, Marxism and, and it is very strange, very perverted understanding of human nature. Freud was trying to do the same thing, but with sex. Um, you know, there are studies now showing that there is nothing that he asserted as essential to the psychiatric profession that was supported by any clinical studies, all lies. And yet, look how it took over so much of the imagination and minds and bodies of so many people. Uh, in their way, too many scientists are trying to take over the entire world in the name of science. Mm. Um, the, uh, so they, you see, whatever worth you would give to the church, at least historically, in its growth out of Israel, uh, there from Abraham up through to Christ, and the apostles, you have this movement to go to, to all nations and give them the form of God's holiness. Everything else is a rather hugely distorted um, form of that. Anything you want me to repeat? Uh, the um, there was something I wanted to add to that. Uh, 
let me give you an example, um, well, maybe two examples of the, uh, three examples <laughs> of the spread of the church. Um, the first one, of course, is with the apostles. Um, notice that the apostles did not stay in Jerusalem. They went out to all nations. Uh, even Thomas uh, gets to India. Uh, but uh, somebody like Paul uh, takes a, a central area of the uh, ecumene, that is, the whole world, as it was known, but it was basically the Mediterranean basin. Mm -hmm. But, and in some ways, um, the, the Roman Empire, though it starts in the Mediterranean basin, expands up into uh, Great Britain, as we call it now, up to Hadrian's Wall, and then it goes up to Trier and takes in all of that Germanic territory uh, that is marked by the uh, Danube River. And then it uh, goes over uh, through um, into the, the Near East. And then, you know, the, before the Muslims destroyed it so much, North Africa, from the Pacific through to, uh, let's say, the Holy Land, any number of uh, Roman cities. Uh, take, for instance, St. Augustine. He's born in uh, a little town called Thagaste in um, 350 AD. Now, it, it had its own stadium, it had its bath, Roman baths, it had all of the uh, institutional structures of the Roman Empire, and uh, there were a number of rather very wealthy people. Augustine's own family was not particularly wealthy, but his father was sufficiently well-placed to be something of a tax gatherer. And they could usually make a lot of money. But interestingly enough, Thagaste is here on a, a more or less of a plain. And if Augustine had walked 20 miles up to the top of the mountain range, 20 miles from his home, he would have been looking out and down into the Sahara Desert. Wow. That's how close he was to what was considered the civilized world. Mm -hmm. uh, but then he makes it to Carthage, 
which at that time was a big, flourishing and roaring city. Um, from there he makes it to Rome, it sets himself up as a teacher, not very successful, because his students, like so many students, would take the lessons and not pay. Mm. So he goes to a major pagan, because this is after Constantine. He goes to a major senator, very influential man, by the name of Simicus. And Simicus gets uh, Augustine a job in the imperial civil service, let's say. So in some ways, Augustine is something of a PR man for the emperor, who at that time was seven years old, (laughs) a little boy. But one of Augustine's jobs was if a law was made in the name of the emperor, Mm -hmm. Augustine's job was to turn it into good Latin. Uh, so he was, he was like the press secretary, or a press secretary, to the uh, emperor. But he was in the corridors of power, as one would say. And, but uh, with the um, with an apostle like Paul, when he gets into what we call Syria and Turkey, but particularly Turkey, and how he spreads the faith there. Mm-hmm. And Peter has already gotten to Rome. And then Paul gets to Rome. And there's a lot of discussion amongst historians and exegetes if he ever got to Spain. We know that he wanted to go to Spain. Okay. And he said something to the, the uh, Catholics in Rome that uh, uh, perhaps you'll help me on my way to Spain. <laughs> Because traveling costs a lot of money. In any case, there was a spread through the Mediterranean basin. But then, you see, with uh, by 325 with Constantine, it's actually 312, but with the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD, Catholicism becomes the official religion of the empire. So right away, it's diffused through all the territorial holdings of the Roman Empire. Um, Another example. The, um, it has to do with monasteries, particularly male monasteries, uh, but with sisters as well. But with uh, the, the Benedictines, uh, that's starting somewhere around 525 AD with Benedict. But one monastery, there were monasteries, but they started adopting the rule of St. Benedict. So that brought them into some kind of association or 
confederation, but they started spreading all over the place. And even if one doesn't consider them as important Catholic institutions, they were at least major civilizing centers wherever they tended to go. So many of the major European cities started around monasteries. Mm. Uh, but um, <clears throat> there was a reform of the Benedict's, Benedictines. The rule allows all different intensities of, uh, of life. But there was a, a reform called the uh, Cistercians. And I used to have a series of maps, uh, a colored map of Europe over into Russia. Uh, and then there was a plastic fold down. So it showed the number on the printed colored page. It showed the existing monasteries, let's say, in uh, 800 AD. There's a great number of them, but they, they all tend to be sort of uh, just still within the Roman Empire and the border with the Danube. But the, the first transparent page showed the expansion of Cistercian monasteries. Mm. And they've jumped over the Danube and they're going through all of the Eastern European countries. And then there was another full transparency that you folded down and you could see they spread out towards Russia and then simply stopped like this. But in the, the maps were so, so dotted with monasteries. And usually monasteries uh, tried to keep a distance of something like 20 miles between each other. I just, did they have any connection with the Pope? Oh, yes. Were the Popes there all along? Oh, yes, yeah. Through the centuries? Yeah. yeah. Uh, and the local bishops and archbishops. And, okay. Um, but, uh, you know, there's a bit of a puzzle, this huge expansion. And you can see, evidently, by these maps, that Europe could not be Europe if it weren't for the monasteries, because they were the sources of the presence of God and the worshipers of God. And with each monastery, uh, they tended to, as uh, the Benedictines, some Benedictines still do, farming was their big activity. Um, um, but the um, Europe would not be Europe if it weren't for this network of monasteries. Ah, yes, 
people would come to live near the monastery for Sunday Mass or feast days or for protection. And uh, they would become farmers and there'd be a village and then there'd be a, uh, a town and then a city. And the, uh, very often the Abbey Church became the cathedral for the bishop. And, but you see, there were also the, the schools. They were the schools of Europe. On top of that, the, they, they didn't exactly become orphanages, but it became very, very common for families to entrust their boys to a, a monastery for education. And that meant that they had uh, a place to sleep and a warm place in the wintertime, and they had food, they were being educated. Uh, and on top of that, the monasteries uh, acted as uh, medical centers. No monastery could be without its herbal garden. And the herbs were the form of uh, medicine uh, up until the first Rockefeller here turned everything into pills. So we've got the big pharmaceutical companies now. But you see, with the monasteries, very often they did have orphanages. And uh, they also started functioning as centers of uh, uh, having old folks' homes. Now you see what a network it would be if uh, there were monasteries or as they became cathedral towns um, in the high medieval period. But it was a network of life connecting Europe together as a unity. Why did the monasteries suddenly just stop? Uh, it's as if there were a straight line. Uh, and monasteries up to the line, and after that, very close to the line, there might have been a few out across the line, but otherwise emptiness. Because of some of the, well, Genghis Khan is a major reason. You see, the nomads on horseback and Genghis Khan, we're talking in the 1200s now, or late 1100s. Um, you see, they could easily maneuver where there were no trees. But a man on horseback in a forest was at a disadvantage. So the monasteries were built to the edge of the forests. And then you had the Russian steppes with very, very few trees. Uh, but now you can see that uh, there is a certain, 
universality of humanity that is being developed in and through the church. Because let's say, if, uh, let's say during the 9, 10, 11 hundreds, you look at a, a city in northern Italy, and who's the bishop? He's an Irishman in northern Italy. You look up into Germany, who's the bishop? He's an Italian. Look at uh, Britain with uh, St. Augustine, not Augustine of Hippo in North Africa, but Augustine uh, who was sent by, now which Pope I forget. But he was an Italian being sent to, uh, to become the Archbishop of Canterbury. So you see, there was a certain internationalism which was coming out of the church, and not only because of its form of um, sacramental life, but also because of the common language and the development of uh, a new kind of law called canon law, canon or a rule of law. Um, so that uh, ideal of um, a union of all humans in a common form of life um, formed by God for his purposes. But it's, uh, it's the foundation for so many of these enterprises now. Um, and most of these modern movements towards uh, universalism <laughs> uh, are pretty destructive. I myself don't know of any particular one. <laughs> one might say, one we used to hear a great amount about Taizé in Switzerland, I think. Um, a group of Protestants getting together for common prayer. And the common prayer was open to anybody. Uh, but I don't know that it... I don't know even know if it functions any longer. Well, I think so, in France. In France? Mm -hmm. it's and their leader died a, a couple of years ago. Oh, uh, uh, yes. But I think He'd become I've a known people that have yeah. gone. Yeah. He had become a Catholic. Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, there's a certain universal, I, I won't use that word. There's a certain bonding of people into a unity by 
going to a pilgrimage center. Look at the number of people who go to Lourdes every year or to um, Fatima. Uh, you've all seen that huge big church, the Church of the Sacred Heart on Montmartre in Paris. Mm-hmm. Huge big domes and everything. Well, that's a big pilgrimage center. Uh, uh, I've often been in it and seated in one of the pews and pilgrims and sightseers are being funneled all around the church so that you can sit in the middle in the pews and the Blessed Sacrament is there and you're in utter quiet and peace. But all of these people who've come to see it and some of them kneel down for a while and then they leave. But there's a, always a bunch of people who are there for a long time. You see, there are various centers like that. Uh, uh, let me give you another example. Vienna. <laughs> I've spent a lot of time uh, living with some friends in Vienna. They live uh, in a marvelous apartment. Um, about a 10-minute walk from the cathedral called Stephansdom, right in, mm. in the center. And uh, the, um, you go into this big Gothic church, and over, you more or less have to know about it. If you look over to your right, there's this big wooden door, and you go and you open it up, and you go into a, a small chapel, well, I don't think it's any bigger than from this wall to maybe here, mm-hmm. maybe a little bit more. And it would be from here, maybe to the end of the table down there. It's a small little room, beautiful stone carving and everything of this sort. But the Blessed Sacrament is there. And there must be a row of about eight benches, pews. <clears throat> and you go in there, sometimes you have to stand up because uh, people have crammed themselves in there. And nobody is moving, there's no sound. The, if you just look at it in terms of attention, you could sort of take it and put it in a box and carry it with you. It's that dense. Mm-hmm. And this happened time and time again. I usually tried to get uh, in the back pew or get the bench on the back wall. <clears throat> Somebody would stand up and they're going to leave. And or they'd, you could see that they were moving and collecting their things and then they would settle down again. And then they'd stand up and they'd do the double genuflection at the outside the pew. And they might stay there on their knees for another five or 10 minutes. Mm-hmm. Then they'd get up slowly and move to the wall. They could not leave. They did not want to leave. 
And finally they go at the door. But I've seen that time and time again. Uh, uh, not only there, but you see, it's a cohesion of a, a group of humans. Uh, just to put it on sort of a rather flat level, a cohesion of people for a spiritual purpose. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They're not going to get rich, they're not going to get powerful, they're not going to become famous, uh, though some do. Uh, you see, there's no human reason mm -hmm. for them behaving the way they, they do behave. Um, so the, the, oh my goodness. Is it about time? Uh, sorry. It's two o'clock. Yeah. Oh my goodness. <laughs> the Magnus Podcast is a production of the Albertus Magnus Institute Incorporated. To learn more, way more, by becoming a fellow today, visit magnusinstitute.org. Copyright 2023, Albertus Magnus Institute Incorporated. All rights reserved.